I'm Bonnie Lin, Director of the China Power Project and Senior Fellow for Asian Security at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. In this episode of the China Power Podcast, we're discussing the recent release of the U.S. National Defense Strategy and its implications for relations with China. How does the NDS evaluate China? What policies is the Department of Defense pursuing in the Indo-Pacific? What does the NDS mean for the future of U.S. policy toward China? Here to discuss these questions is Dr. Mara Carlin, Assistant Secretary of Defense for Strategy, Plans, and Capabilities. Dr. Carlin is responsible for advising the Secretary of Defense and other senior leaders on national security and defense strategy. Dr. Carlin ensures that the Department of Defense's program and budget decisions support and advance senior DoD leader strategic direction, especially as articulated in defense planning guidance. Mara, thank you for joining us today. I know you're limited in what you can say, but we appreciate any insights that you could share with us about the national defense strategy. Thank you for having me. It's a real treat to be here. So the topic of our discussion today is the national defense strategy. So I want to begin by gaining a better understanding of how it was drafted and developed. I understand this was simultaneously developed with the nuclear posture review and the missile defense review. Could you talk a bit more about the drafting process and, in particular, what if anything has changed in this national defense strategy about China after the Russian invasion of Ukraine? Thanks for that, Bonnie. You know, I'm really excited that for the very first time in the department's history. All of the major strategic reviews were done together: the National Defense Strategy, the Nuclear Posture Review, and the Missile Defense Review. They were all integrated, and that was an incredibly important process because it meant that we had intellectual coherence, and then, of course, resource coherence in bringing those ideas together. It doesn't make sense, given this security environment, for us to stovepipe certain capabilities or domains. It's just a strategic, frankly. So, starting toward the end of last summer or so, we began all three reviews with one big cohort working on them across the entire department. And our approach was really to focus on being inclusive. We wanted to ensure that folks at different levels, but particularly at the most senior level, were involved in these reviews. We focused on being iterative. So we were going back and forth and making sure that in these discussions at the different levels, folks always understood. Where in the process were we? When and how and in what ways could they contribute? And how would decisions be teed up and understood and conveyed? That was really crucial, frankly. If you're inclusive and if you're iterative, it just makes implementation a whole lot easier. Folks understand the North Star and they understand their role in the North Star and want to help make that a reality. So at the very end of March, we published all three classified reviews and handed them to Congress. And we did that with our budget. And we really wanted them to see that we had this tight, clear strategy to resources linkage. And then once the national security strategy came out just a couple weeks ago, we published our unclassified versions just after that. And I would highlight. Really, one big difference in this strategy compared to the 2018 National Defense Strategy, which I think was a very solid document. It was a document that helped reorient the department from the post 9/11 wars to really dealing with strategic competitors. What we saw, though, is that document focused on the People's Republic of China. And Russia as effectively equal challenges, and this document doesn't do that. This document has much more explicit prioritization. Indeed, the central focus is that urgent need 
to sustain and strengthen deterrence focused on the People's Republic of China as the pacing challenge. Thank you. So given the timelines that you mentioned that the classify strategy was already available and drafted in March, it seems to me at least the China portions of the strategy was not shaped very much by the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Yeah, I, I think that that is absolutely right. You know, we refer to Russia as an acute threat in this strategy. And we conveniently, of course, had Russia's playbook, you know, toward the end of last year and had an idea of what they would be doing. And so we have actually seen some of the core tenets of the strategy come to life as we have watched Russia's aggressive and unprovoked war in Ukraine. And, you know, I would highlight in particular just the emphasis on our allies and our partners. We know what an unparalleled network that is. We know what a comparative advantage that is. And I think we have watched that network of allies and partners really come to the fore in extraordinary ways throughout this conflict. I should underscore, though, while the invasion hasn't changed our views on the People's Republic of China as really being the only country in the world with the intent and increasingly the capability to meaningfully reshape the international order, What we have watched very closely is the increasing alignment between Russia and the People's Republic of China. And we're really taking account of that as we look toward the future. You know, Russia doesn't have a whole lot of countries that are standing by it in this conflict. You know, unfortunately, the People's Republic of China appears to be one. Iran and North Korea appear to be some of the others. So Mara, I did also want to ask you, one of the difficulties of drafting a national defense strategy is really being able to think through the range of scenarios in which China could pose a threat or challenge to either us or our allies and partners. Could you just walk us through how you or your team thought through you know, the range of scenarios uh, in order to prioritize what the Department of Defense should invest in? You know, given this form, I think what would be a good way to tackle what what is a very important question is to just underscore how and in what ways this strategy prioritizes this challenge that we are seeing vis-a-vis the People's Republic of China. So, So just quickly kind of walking through those. The first priority says we're going to defend the U.S. homeland. And it doesn't just say we're going to defend the U.S. homeland. It says defend the U.S. homeland pace to the growing multi-domain threat posed by the People's Republic of China. That should be pretty clear in terms of how we are understanding that element of the challenge. The second priority says we will deter strategic attacks against the United States, our allies, and our partners. And here in particular, as you look kind of deeper in the documents, you can see that strategic attacks involves what can be quite rare, high-consequence attacks um, that really have strategic-level impact, if you will. So I think that's another good example. That third priority is probably the pithiest in hitting what you are you are getting at, which is the need to deter aggression and then be able to prevail in conflict should deterrence fail, focusing first on the PRC challenge in the Indo-Pacific, followed by the Russia challenge in Europe. There is so much prioritization baked into that priority. It's really showing you what are the concepts you need to be focused on, what are the capabilities you need to be building, and in particular, how are you thinking about different regional and global challenges? And then, of course, that final priority, the need to ensure our future military advantage, which means we've got to build a resilient joint force and defense ecosystem, which says, hey, Department of Defense, we've got to do a bunch of stuff differently to make sure those first three priorities can really be meaningfully implemented. And so I hope those are some ways of trying to get at what you're asking, which is a really, really critical point that in this forum, I can only, of course, say so much about, but that there is some serious effort and serious work 
happening across this Department of Defense to try to realize the intent of the national defense strategy. Thank you. So I want to drill down a little bit more in terms of how the NDS talks about the China threat or challenge. One of the areas that I found most striking compared to the 2018 national defense strategy was the identification of China as a risk to the U.S. homeland, which I didn't see there. I was wondering if you could unpack that as well as other characterizations of the China threat a bit more in this discussion. You know, Bonnie, I really appreciate that you focused on that piece because it is one that has probably gotten a little bit less attention, but it's arguably one of the more important differences from 2018. You know, it is easy, I think, for so many of us to have a post 9-11 wars paradigm in terms of how we understand threats to the homeland. And yet what we see now and what we saw as we were trying to understand the security environment today and going forward is we see both the People's Republic of China and Russia posing more dangerous all domain challenges to the safety and the security of the U.S. homeland. So we need to, of course, remain vigilant in the face of persistent homeland threats from terrorist groups, of course. But we see a different type of challenge coming from these two countries. And so we're we're pretty attuned to it. If I might take this as a quick opportunity to just highlight how holistically we are trying to deal with challenges of course, challenges to the homeland, but writ large. And that is this concept of integrated deterrence, which you probably heard Secretary Austin speak a bit about. And, you know, the idea of integrated deterrence summed up is, frankly, use all the tools in your toolkit and have all the folks standing next to you and working together collaboratively. Integrated deterrence is really dealing with three cohorts inside the Department of Defense, across the interagency, and our allies and partners. And it's saying, let's all do what we do best. So inside the Department of Defense, let's make sure we have a combat credible force. Let's make sure that we are looking across domains, not in stovepipes. We're looking across the spectrum of conflict and that we are being able to operate across theaters. And then it gets to that piece of the interagency, right? Let's make sure that our Treasury colleagues are able to do everything they can, say, with sanctions. Our State Department colleagues are doing everything they can, say, with diplomacy. Let's knit that together. And I think we've seen some pretty extraordinary examples of where that has happened. And then, of course, that allied and partner network, which I I had briefly mentioned. And what's been neat, I think, over the last few months in particular, has been to not just watch that allied and partner network get stronger regionally, but also cross-regionally. So I was so struck by the Madrid summit, seeing a couple of our allies from the Indo-Pacific come and participate. I thought that was really neat. Or when I'm talking to our European allies, just hearing how many of them have strategies grounded in the Indo-Pacific, how many of them are thinking about that region and frankly are thinking about the People's Republic of China as a different type of challenge. I think that's all really important. And so while I know you're asking about the homeland defense piece in particular, which is a really important point, I would just underscore with that challenge and with all of them, we're really trying to take this integrated approach rather than just looking through things through a kind of soda straw. Of course. And can I ask, uh, in terms of integrated deterrence, I saw that that was quite central to the NDS, and it was also spelled out in a separate box in the national security strategy. So question, is DOD the lead for the integrated deterrence, or is it, as you mentioned, it's whole of government? So I'm just trying to understand who would be sort of the main U.S. actor in the lead for pushing this. So we really want integrated deterrence to help Our department understand its role, and we think it's probably a useful construct for others as well, for other departments and agencies. And I appreciate you highlighting that it was in the national security strategy. I think that is an important point. 
You know, in the post 9-11 wars, the the concept of deterrence just kind of atrophied a bit. It wasn't, frankly, as relevant when you're dealing with threats like Al-Qaeda and ISIS. And so part of the concept of integrated deterrence is not just that integrated piece I highlighted, but also figure out how we evolve our thinking on deterrence as well. You know, how we can kind of refresh our thinking on it, mature it and evolve it. So we're all pretty comfortable, I think, with the idea of deterrence by denial. So denying the adversary from achieving its objectives or deterrence by cost imposition, making it really painful for the adversary to achieve its goals. What we've tried to do also with this concept is add in the idea of deterrence by resilience. So making it possible so if there were some sort of an attack, we can ride it out and then we can escalate on our own terms and, and really, really on our, our kind of own a, agenda. And I would just note for all of this to work, We really have to have a serious assessment system. We've got to have a real way of stepping back and saying, let's look at our feedback loops. Can we understand? Are we having the impact we think we're having? Are we able to measure it? And if not, why not? What do we what do we need to do differently? And so as we are implementing the national defense strategy, that's really a key area of focus. Thank you. I noticed also on the national defense strategy, a key area that it clarified a bit more was the task for DOD to also be able to deal with acute gray zone challenges. And I know this has always been an issue of, for quite some time, had been an issue of debate within the Pentagon. So I just wanted to see if you could share with us why the conclusion was that DOD would deal with not only the high-end conflict, but acute gray zone challenges. And what are examples of acute gray zone challenges when it comes to China? So part of the idea of integrated deterrence, as I note, is we've got to be able to to operate across the spectrum of conflict. Frankly, we have seen countries like the People's Republic of China and Russia pretty comfortable jumping across that spectrum of conflict. And we're working on that as well, because, frankly, that's how we see the security environment changing and evolving. We recognize, however, for gray zone conflict, we've got to we've got to understand it. Right. Diagnosis is often the hardest part in gray zone conflict where geographies are are being changed. I remember quite strongly being in the Pentagon during the Obama administration when there was all of this island building, right? And and it was kind of this perfect case study of gray zone activity. And what was important was to try to understand what's going on here and what's the impact of it, because it is obviously in the gray space. As we go to prescription, it's worth thinking through which parts of the entire U.S. government are right for responding to it and have the right tools. And while the Department of Defense and the U.S. military absolutely has a role to play in gray zone conflict, so much of it, because it quite literally is under a threshold, requires such the imperative of a whole of government approach. And so we wanted to ensure that it's not just us looking at gray zone conflict, but really that the entire interagency is trying to target it as well. They often have better tools, more appropriate tools for dealing with those kinds of challenges. You know, the way I think about gray zone challenges is that they are under a threshold, right? You really, if it is gray zone, I have to stop and think a couple beats what exactly is going on here. It is not a country trying to necessarily directly show all of its capabilities and directly off, you know, threaten or or what have you. But I should note what we have tried to do with this national defense strategy is ensure that today's military, tomorrow's military, the military years and years from now can deal with the hardest challenges in that global security environment and that it is able to do that as part of an interagency and working really closely with our allies and partners. 
So I wanted to move on to focusing a little bit more on the force construct and what what uh, you could share with us in terms of the force construct that the national defense strategy lays out and particularly how we should think about the force construct vis-a-vis China. Because it does seem in the NDS that it lays out that the United States should be ready to be able to fight an all-domain conflict with one major power, but it does not lay out the construct that the United States should be able to engage in two conflicts simultaneously. But I wanted to just hear more from you on on your thinking through this and how China figures in your constructing of what is the appropriate design for DOD. It's worth reminding folks what the force planning construct is, and it's really supposed to be how we size and shape the future military. It's not how we should manage today's force or use today's force. It's really supposed to kind of be a decoder ring, if you will, to help us understand how we build the future force. And I underscore that because it seems to be one of these concepts that can often be a bit confused. So the 2022 National Defense Strategy's force planning construct really does key off of the 2018 National Defense Strategy's approach. It focuses on the need to simultaneously defend the homeland, maintain strategic deterrence and deter and if necessary, prevail in conflict. And so that's really, you know, focusing on that bigger challenge, not least because it's where we see the security environment moving. And I would highlight that If one were worried about opportunistic aggression, which often comes up in force planning construct conversations, you know, to deter opportunistic aggression elsewhere, really the plan is to employ a wide range of risk mitigation efforts that are rooted in integrated deterrence. We've also wanted to ensure that we are building a force that can respond to small-scale, short-duration crises without substantially impairing our high-end warfighting readiness. So there's a balance to be struck, but there's some important prioritization there. I would highlight, though, because force planning constructs you know, live, live in the future to an extent, uh, maybe giving you just a moment about how we are applying this idea of integrated deterrence to what the Department Department's approaches to the People's Republic of China. And I would highlight a couple things. As you know, the president's budget request was the largest Defense Department budget request in our history. And it really underscored having a combat credible force and a combat credible posture in the Indo-Pacific. That's a little bit about what the Department of Defense is doing, but this story is so much bigger than us, of course. And I would just call out uh, the great work by our colleagues in Congress and what they've done with the CHIPS Act, which is incredibly meaningful. We've seen steps by our allies and partners in Europe and the Indo-Pacific who are responding in a whole bunch of different ways, such as trying to decrease their economic vulnerabilities. And so I think we are seeing the different levers of integrated deterrence really applied in a pretty effective manner vis-a-vis what we see as, frankly, the the greatest challenge going forward. So with this force construct, it seems like in the future, our military should be able to, if if called upon, engage in a large-scale conflict with Russia on one hand and maybe deter Chinese opportunism at the same time or vice versa. I think what one would want to be able to do is have a range of risk mitigation efforts, right? So we've got to find ways to both prioritize and recognize that there are going to be risks elsewhere. And so what are the different tools in our toolkit that we can use to be able to buy down that risk? You know, this was just one of the many reminders, frankly, to me about why it was important to take such an integrated approach to building strategy. So we really could look across all of the domains and figure out how and in what ways they can be most relevant. 
I also wanted to ask you a little bit about nuclear weapons because that portion, the nuclear posture review was a good portion had focused on China and the possibility that as China's nuclear capabilities grow and accelerate, that even though we have so far today not seen any signs that China is significantly changing its nuclear doctrine, that there might be new ways that China might think about uh, using nuclear weapons. The possibility of China's nuclear posture, nuclear doctrine changing over the longer term in the future. How much did that factor into our thinking of the type of force that the United States needs moving forward? You know, it's worth stepping back and remembering that earlier this year, the leaders of the five declared nuclear weapon states, so France, the PRC, Russia, the United Kingdom, and the United States, of course, all affirmed that a nuclear war cannot be won and must never be fought. It's just, it's worth remembering that. What we tried to do in the Nuclear Posture Review, which really attempts to take a comprehensive and balanced approach to how we're defending our vital national security interests, is to strike a balance. And that balance that had to be struck was both ensuring we have a safe, secure, and effective nuclear deterrent and strong and credible extended deterrence, while also taking steps to reduce the risk of nuclear war and the global salience of nuclear weapons. We recognize that if we're just comparing to the last nuclear posture review, for example, that the international security environment in this regard has deteriorated. We recognize that the PRC sees the growing salience of nuclear weapons, that Russia sees the growing salience of nuclear weapons. We see that as part of their strategy. And of course, Russia's invasion of Ukraine is just a stark reminder of nuclear risk in contemporary conflict. And the PRC's nuclear modernization and expansion does present us with new risks and uncertainties. We know that for the first time in history, we're going to need to deter two major nuclear armed competitors. That's a different game. It's what had been a game of two actors to now be one of three actors. That's going to create different dilemmas. And we realize that. We also, though, need to be really smart about what that game looks like and how and in what ways we effectively engage in that. Great. Now, I I also wanted to touch on another issue that's been uh, in the headlines for quite some time, which is Taiwan. Could you talk a little bit about how the national defense strategy as you put together all the different elements that you mentioned, integrated turns, working closely with our allies and partners, thinking about how China could resort to use of nuclear weapons. As you package everything together, what is it showing in terms of preparing the United States to be involved potentially in a Taiwan conflict? On Taiwan, cross-strait peace and stability remains fundamental for U.S. national security interests in the Indo-Pacific. Taiwan is integral to the regional and global economy, And it's frankly an example for the world as a beacon of democratic values and ideals. We have all watched the PRC's increasingly provocative rhetoric and increasingly coercive activity. And we see that as destabilizing. We see that as being worrisome in terms of miscalculating with risks. And it threatens the the peace and stability of the Taiwan Strait. We don't see that the United States has done things differently, nor do we see that Taiwan has done things differently. We really see that it is the People's Republic of China that is taking that different approach, and that different approach is destabilizing. We are doing what we can to support Taiwan's asymmetric defense capabilities 
And we're doing that commensurate with the evolving PRC challenge and consistent, of course, with all of our longstanding policies, our longstanding one China policy, which we know is guided by the Taiwan Relations Act, the three joint communiques and the six assurances. And I would just underscore on that front, you know, we categorically oppose any unilateral changes to the status quo from either side. And we want any challenges to be resolved by peaceful means. Could I follow up on that a little bit more to ask if you can say maybe this you can't say on the record, but to what extent was Taiwan a critical scenario for those drafting the NDS when thinking about dealing with the China challenge? This strategy is very clear on prioritization. That is not always the case with Department of Defense strategies, as we all know. And when you look through the four priorities it outlines, when you look through the central premise, I think there should be a very big takeaway, which is this Department of Defense is exceedingly focused on the People's Republic of China. And so given that, we are watching what the People's Republic of China is doing inside the region and outside of the region, and that is absolutely accounted for as we are both managing and building the future military. I hope that's a helpful way of getting at that question. So one last question uh, before we, we wrap up. So as we look at all the different aspects of the national defense strategy that you just outlined in terms of addressing the growing Chinese threat and challenge, what are the most important steps that the U.S. military needs to be doing, whether it's in the next couple of years or much longer in the future? For the department to meaningfully implement the national defense strategy, which, as I just noted, is really premised on this urgent need to sustain and strengthen deterrence with the People's Republic of China as the pacing challenge, a couple key things need to happen. We need to make sure that we are investing in a combat credible force, a force that is able to deal with the contingencies of today and tomorrow. We need to make sure that we are prioritizing operating concepts that are joint and that are effective And we need to work very closely with our allies and our partners. You know, this strategy is in many ways a call to action, meaningfully collaborating with our allies and partners. And for us all to be able to deal with this destabilizing challenge, we've got to really tackle it together. So these are just kind of three areas that jump out to me about how this Department of Defense needs to ensure that it is dealing with this growing challenge. And I will say, as of now, I think the picture is looking pretty bright. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you very much, Mahara, for joining us today.